<laughs> Start off with a kid screaming hello and welcome to the In the Tank podcast. <laughs> In response to OPEC's announcement that we were that they were going to be lowering oil production, the Biden administration said that they're going to further release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We're going to be talking about this, why the administration is doing it. Also, several months after Biden signed an executive order about central bank-backed digital currencies, the White House released a fact sheet about their plans to move forward with a CBDC. We're going to be talking about all of this and more in episode 366 of the In the Tank podcast. Yeah, there's a little bit of a play date going on over here. So if you hear kids in the background, uh, they're not working in my cobalt mines. They're just having fun. So uh, welcome to the Take Podcast. As always, I am your host, Donald Kendall. And joining me today, I've got Justin Haskins, editorial director here at the Heartland Institute and co-author of Glenn Beck's latest book, The Great Reset, Joe Biden and the Rise of 21st Century Fascism, which just crossed over the 7,000 review mark on Amazon. I know Justin keeps track of that. What's going on, Justin? Yeah. Uh, it's I'm tired. Writing 7,000 reviews isn't easy. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, I actually, I've, I've got, I've got a, a question I want to throw out to the public. Um, so I moved to a new state. I'm not going to tell people where because otherwise Antifa will be camped out on my front lawn. Alaska. But I moved to another state, uh, not Alaska. <laughs> And uh, so you don't have to worry about that, Antifa, if you're worried about going to Alaska. Um, and I just I'm, I'm in the process of registering to vote, which apparently you can do entirely by mail in this insane place. And um, I have to choose between all these different political parties now that are okay. out there. And apparently there's more than just your standard Republican and Democrat political parties. I didn't know this, but apparently this is the case. We all have heard, of course, of the Libertarian Party, so we can throw that into the mix, right? But we also have the Independent Party. I don't know what that is. Oh, sweet. That's not independent. That doesn't mean you read it. It's an independent party. Sure. Then there is the uh, Constitution Party, which I think I've heard of maybe, but I have no idea what it is really. Uh, the Pacific Green Party, which I think <laughs> is different than the Green Party. Then there's the Progressive Party. Then there's also the Working Families Party, which I don't know. I am a working family, so maybe that's where I'm going to go. I'm not entirely sure. And then there's just the other with a line that lets me write something else in. Oh, sweet. Seems, communist. <laughs> which seems to suggest that either there's a whole bunch of other parties that they just couldn't fit onto the form for whatever reason. Or you could just make your own party whenever you feel like it and you just scribble it into this voter registration mark. So for those who are, you know, in, in the live chat here, maybe you could just give me a suggestion. What do you think? It could be Republican, Constitution, Independent Party. I don't know what they believe, but who knows? Libertarian, Pacific Green Party, Working Families Party, Progressive Party, or do I create my own political party and start my own movement? Any I, think, I think you should start your own. 
I, th- yeah. I think you should start your own. I think, I think I'm going to call it the Justin Askins party. Yeah, it's long past time. That's uh, it's long past time that you create your own political party. You're right. That's true. Also joining us, we have Chris Talgo, senior editor here at the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? Doing good. And yeah, so Donnie, we are about a month away from uh, the big election. And I don't know about you guys, but man, am I getting really sick and tired of these uh, political commercials. Just yeah, all non-stop, those Pacific Green Party all ads. Day, all along. <laughs> Oh, geez. Yeah. It's oh, only going to get worse from here. another working families party ad. I just can't, can't handle it. Yeah, all the road signs. That's that's the thing that I that I get most annoyed by. It's really? all those like signs the on the corner. Signs. Oh, what? Ugh. No, no thanks. Well, would you rather it's... see a piece of trash or blowing down the street? Or... Wait, like, that's, well, the wait, wait. <laughs> that's the option? That's the option? I have to pick between those? In, Il- in Illinois? Yeah. Probably <laughs> for for every for every one of those road signs, that's one piece of trash that's picked up. That's the Justin Haskins party guarantee. Uh, so um, for those people that are in the chat, uh, you'll see that Jim Lakely is in the chat. He is not on the screen. That is because he has some family matters to take care of. Uh, so he is traveling. Uh, across the country right now via via road trip. So he's listening in. Hopefully he's keeping his eyes on the road and not on uh, trying to respond to any of the points that we're going to make here. But uh, wish him good luck in all of his ventures here. And it's just going to be us three holding down the fort. Um, so then also, before we get into any of the topics, I have to say this at the beginning of every podcast, which is uh, to help us help us by just doing a couple simple things. Hit that like button, hit that share button, uh, write a comment underneath the video. All these things help break through that big tech algorithm that prevents content like this from being shown to more people. Also, we've created a in the tank podcast channel on YouTube because YouTube threatened to destroy our main heartland channel because of some of the controversial things that we say. So if there's going to be an episode where we might be tiptoeing into some controversial territory, we might only stream it on that in the tank channel. So to ensure that you don't miss an episode, make sure to subscribe to that separate channel. Uh, so gentlemen, before we get into the topics at hand, I was thinking about our last episode. So our last episode, Justin wasn't a part of it, but I told you about it. It was titled, is the climate cult crumbling or some variation of those words. And in that podcast, we talked about the major banks like Bank of America, Citibank, uh, JP Morgan Chase that have all lined up behind the great reset and ESG. We talked about the massive asset management firms like BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and all of them that are lining up behind the Great Reset and ESG. And we also talked about Al Gore and Davos, which are some of the biggest advocates of the Great Reset and, and ESG. And the point of the episode was that the Climate Alliance seemed to be fracturing a little bit. They're not seemingly completely on the same page. And, uh, you know, it, 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 but it still highlighted that these major, major players that we're up against in this fight uh, over climate alarmism and worse over a suicidal energy policy. And this doesn't even to take into account the role the government plays in all of this, the, the, the fleet of, of think tanks uh, like Sierra Club that have budgets that are far larger than ours. And like I said, I was thinking about this, this latest episode and I thought, you know, we really are the underdogs in this fight. And to say that, you know, that's like a David and Goliath story <laughs> is really underselling the the reality of the situation. It's more like David versus 20 super Goliaths. <laughs> and, if you, and if you look at how our opponents like depict us, they somehow think that it's the complete opposite. 
in their mind, we're the Goliath and we're funded by big oil and the Koch brothers. And we're just picking on poor old Greta Thunberg. And all she wants to do is try to save the planet from, you know, us terrible people wanting to pour toxic waste into the water supply. Um, uh, Justin, what do you think about this? Am I overstating things? No, I mean, not, not at all. I mean, I, I don't think I, one of the funniest things um, that I've learned coming work, working for the Heartland Institute, and I learned this very early on. This is a lesson that if you if you write for uh, Heartland or you uh, go on TV, you're visible at all. You you get you get a lot of um, you get a lot of hate mail and you get a lot of, um, you know, people on social media saying all these terrible things about you and whatever. But one of the main talking points that you get from people on the left is that you guys are, we can't believe anything you say. Doesn't matter what facts or figures you throw out there. Doesn't matter what kind of uh, government report you cite. Doesn't matter. And none of that matters because at the end of the day, you work for the Heartland Institute and they are, you know, stooges of the Koch brothers and big oil and all the, and the way that they always present it is that we've been bought off by these uh. massive interests and that there's just this money like sitting in just bowls, just wads of cash just around the office. And all you got to do is you just walk over and you grab like a fistful of, you know, 10,000 Coke bucks and you walk away. <laughs> and it's like, that's what, that's what life at the Heartland Institute is like. And it's like the opposite is actually the case. Like all of these organizations, including organizations that most regular people have never really heard of have budgets that are like five times our budget. And it's, it's like, it's, and it's not an exaggeration. Like, for example, 350.org, which mm -hmm. people in our universe, we know what 350.org is. But the average person walking down the street does not know what 350.org is. Okay. Sure. They routinely raise 20, 30 million dollars in a year. Routinely. That's just common. And most people don't even know who they are. So it's like, there's a mount, like, if you start looking at organizations like the Brookings Institute and like all these other kinds of places, they have so much money that it's 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 impossible to act not to mention all the government funding that goes into these various studies and things that are meant to just varying degrees undermine our views and stuff there is so much money i honestly don't even know what the ratio is but it's got to be it's got to be like a thousand to one like <laughs> That's it's got to be say. right, right gotta be it's gotta be something like that when you add up all the money so the idea that we are you know we're just we're always it, it, really what it is is it's pathetic like if you guys can't beat us with all of your money and yeah. they have it, because do we have the green new deal do we have these big elaborate policy not really right they, they have little victories here and there we've had victories but they have not gotten what they wanted, despite the fact that they have like a thousand to one. Yeah, advantage. certainly not a thousand times more victories than us. Definitely yeah. not. Definitely yeah. not. So and, it's and, like, and, but but that's the point I right. wanted to make too, because it's like for all of this, for all of the odds stacked against us, we are for the most part like holding our own ground, and like I have no doubt whatsoever that we've had an impact. Like the Heartland Institute represents a backstop that like underpins the counter narrative to the climate change alarmists. And whenever you hear like, um, you know, either you listening or, or a friend of yours or something like that, or even Steven Crowder or Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, when you hear them pushing back against the climate narrative, 
they're either directly or indirectly drawing from a pool of knowledge that the Heartland Institute helped fill. And now I know that I'm biased and, I, and I'm coming off as like tooting our own horn here. But I am surprised at how much of an impact that we have as, as the little guy in this fight. I'm shocked at how much we're able to achieve. And and to just that la that one point that you made, Justin, about like this idea that we're just like grabbing cash out of these like Coke, Coke funded, you know, money stashes all over the place. It's like, uh, of course, that's not true at all. But like I've done 300. This is 366 episode of this show. I have not been once told by any Coke brother stooge or any big oil person what to talk about in the slightest bit. And not only that, but I haven't been told what to say or cover on this show by like even anybody in the Heartland Institute. <laughs> so not, it's, not, it's just basically only, me and Justin and that, Jim coming up with topics. Not only that, but I'm pretty sure that no one on the show has this as their job responsibility in their contract. Like, I don't even think we're getting paid to do this as far as I can tell. <laughs> and you sure as heck weren't when you started this show. No yeah. one said, hey, you know, it's part of your job responsibility. You got to launch a podcast like right. that never happened. So it's it is it is hilarious how they paint it like our people who are on our side are have all been bought off when in reality, I don't think I've ever spoken to a single person from the Coke Foundation or from uh, like any of those major groups that you always think of. I don't think I've had a sing been in a single meeting with any of them. I'm not saying that we haven't had people who have done that before at Heartland. But the point the point is, like, we're not in any way beholden to them. I have no, no idea what they even think about most things to be no, totally I see a, honest with you. I, I see a comment in here and I, I can't verify the veracity of this comment, but it says Koch brothers spent $500 million to defeat Trump. Again, not sure if that's true. Abel Windsor seems like a pretty uh, stand-up person there, so I, I don't think he's going to steer me wrong. But like, if that's the case, I, I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> like, I liked Donald Trump. I supported him. Chris, what do you think about all this? Yeah. Are, we, uh, are, we just, are we just giving ourselves too many pats on the back? No, I think the Heartland Institute punches above its weight. And uh, I think one of the best examples of that is uh, Joe Bast, you know, the founder of this, you know, great place, was at the White House uh, signing ceremony when President Trump decided to get out of the Paris Climate Accords. And, you know, Joe, Joe Bast was one of the people that was, you know, behind that entire thing. Um, but, Donnie, I also just think that this uh, is part of a larger uh, picture here. I I remember back, you know, in the like early to mid 2000s when the narrative was that the Republicans give, have, you know, all the businesses in their back pockets. Yeah. Republicans, you know, get all the money from, you know, big corporations and <laughs> right. Republicans outspend Democrats when it comes to uh, elections and basically everything. The exact opposite is true. Uh, uh, Barack Obama was the first candidate to ever raise a billion dollars when he, you know, soundly defeated John McCain. And then in 2012, he raised way more than uh, Mitt Romney, even though Rit Mitt Romney, they've tried to portray as, you know, Mr. Monopoly. Sure. And then same thing with Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. Donald Trump ran a, you know, a bare bones campaign uh, compared to Hillary Clinton. And then uh, same with Joe Biden versus Trump in uh, 2020. So this mm -hmm. notion that the, you know, that the the right, you know, whether it's, you know, the the mainstream right or the libertarian right or whomever 
is, you know, just, uh, just, you know, has Scrooge McDuck type, you know, money balls, you know, <laughs> that we're just like swimming in. It's just completely unfounded when the total opposite is true. George Soros is, you know, spends billions on uh, elections that, you know, that, that he basically buys. I don't know any uh, major Republican, uh, you know, investors who are doing that. So yeah. Right. Yeah, and just yeah. And just real real quick, like to kind of some, wrap this up. If you look, if you were to look at, so like the Koch brothers are the most notable, like famous, big money conservative donors, right? Sure. Uh, everybody's heard of them, but if you were to look at a list of like the biggest donors po to to political campaigns and things like that over the past, you know, ten years, hmm. the Koch brothers, if I remember right, are are, are like. They're like in the thirties or something. They're like yeah, way yeah. down there. Right. And you have like teachers unions and labor unions and all right. these other people who are much, uh, you know, who are pushing for predominantly left-wing candidates, not exclusively, but predominantly way higher up on the list. So, which is why everything that Chris just said is true. It's right. why, why, why are Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, all these people raising so much more money? Well, because they have more big donors. <laughs> That's why. Yeah. So again, the idea we're all beholden. And by the way, Exxon, cause we didn't mention this, but all of the big oil companies, many of the big oil companies are all 100% in on the other side of this issue anyway, like which, <laughs> which most people don't even realize, but they're funding all of these like green energy projects. They're buying sure. up free energy companies. They're pouring tons of money into that. So the idea that they're Surely they have ESG money, scores. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course they do. Of course. Yeah. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and just like the, the other point, and I, I won't, I won't spend a whole lot of time making this point. I've said it on other shows, but like, like the whole idea of the great reset and ESG and all of that, like we, we brought that from obscurity. You know, some people talked about it, ESG. It almost seemed like some like stock language jargon or whatever, but like we brought that to the forefront of the national conversation. And who told you to do that, Justin? Nobody. Who told me <laughs> Justin oh, just no. found a bunch of weird quotes of these people aligned with the World Economic yeah. Forum talking about the Great Reset. We're like, we should do something about this. Nobody yeah. told us to do it. So again, yeah. it's just another example of just like, you know, not not this massive funding, but just like elbow grease that we were able to take that topic, explain how important it is, and bring it to like a national attention. It's it's and astonishing. I'm. It's just another kind of surprise of how much of an impact we have as such a relatively small organization. And and Donnie, just real quick, you know, this transcends the uh, environment topic. Uh, think of you know big pharma, uh, you know, colluding with the left uh, to get you know, vaccine mandates and stuff. So th this, this is, you know, across many, many different, uh, you know, industries and sectors. Right. Yep. Absolutely. All right. We spent enough time talking about that. I want to get to our main topic of the day, which is talking about the strategic petroleum reserve. Andy, there's a wonderful graph that I'm probably going to reference a couple of times. If you just Google strategic uh, petroleum reserve, it's like a reddish graph. Uh, if you could pull that up whenever you have a moment. But um, there's been a couple of we, we've talked about this before, but there's been a couple of developments. I mentioned some of it in the intro of the podcast. But OPEC, uh, even after Biden groveled to them to produce more oil to counter the loss of oil that the West was getting from Russia, uh, OPEC announced that they are going to cut production of oil by two million barrels a day. The response by the Biden administration was to increase the use of the strategic petroleum reserve. So I wanted to have a conversation about about this uh, this move by the administration and kind of question the official story for this move. 
actually that's a lie justin proposed this topic i just wanted to uh i just simply concurred that's not the chart i was looking for um find the other one so i, <laughs> I want to start off with a little bit of history here uh the so the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created in 1975 after the 1973 oil embargo caused massive disruption in the market. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, or the SPR, is less than 50 years old. So when it was created, Joe Biden was what, like 60? Uh, <laughs> so the government expanded the capacity of this reserve through the 90s and into, uh, sorry, through the 80s and into the 90s to just under 600 million barrels. So... The, uh, the, S the SPR was tapped into a couple of times, um, but not substantially. So the in the in the early 90s, the Iraq-Kuwait crisis, they, they tapped into it a little bit. After Hurricane Katrina in 2005, uh, during the Arab Spring in, in 2011. Um, but none of these things amounted to more than a couple of drops in the bucket. Maybe they took out 25 million barrels here, but then they replaced it, you know, a couple of years later. That's also not it. I'll find it once somebody else starts talking. So uh, in the in the 2000s, the SPR was increased to over 700 million barrels of oil. Uh, according to 2019 numbers, the U.S. consumes about 20 million barrels of oil a day. So a 700 million barrel stock would keep the country running for about 35 days, a little over a month. Now, of course, this is nothing more than a back of the envelope math figure. Surely, if the U.S. faced some complete shutdown of oil production, our consumption rates would lower. But I've just given you a reference number for later. Um, so before we get into what's going on now, uh, Chris, do you have anything to kind of add on to kind of the historical perspective of, of all of this? Uh, no, I think you did a really good job of summarizing it. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, we understood that, uh, you know, uh, the Saudis uh, and OPEC could, you know, cut off our, our oil supplies and really harm our economy. So what did we do? We created Strategic Petroleum Reserve and uh, every president up to President Biden uh, has uh, been a good steward of it. And Donald Trump, uh, during the pandemic, when the price of oil, you know, was, uh, you know, near you know all time lows what did he do he filled it basically to the brim and here we are as i'm sure you'll get into and uh it is no longer uh near capacity yeah um so i, I just sent the chart to you andy so uh, it's just at the top of this page here but it's a it's a good chart and i i, I want to show it because it kind of shows like even when we did tap into it during those couple of occasions that i mentioned that you could see that like it's relatively tiny compared to how we're tapping into it now so um, what's happening now? The Starting in March, the Biden administration okayed the release of a hundred uh, million barrel, or sorry, one million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve a day. So this has resulted in the use of 160 million barrels of crude, or about one-fourth of the entire reserve. All right, so here's the chart. So you could see um, you can see the actual, uh, you know, if you're watching the, the the video version of this, I'll try to include the link in the in the show notes. But you see, like at the bottom there, with those little green bar graph, and then there's little red marks as well. That that first one in like the the early '90s, that's the 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 Kuwait Iraq issue. If you look at uh, 2005, you could see a couple of marks there for where they took some some uh, you know some oil out of this thing. Same thing with 2011. But if you compare that to the far right of that chart, where you just see this giant red 
mass that it makes those other things just look like blips on the radar. So that just kind of shows you the comparison of what we're taking out now compared to any other time in the history of this thing. So uh, let's see. So in March, when the release started, the price of crude oil jumped to $120. It fluctuated between there and 100 bucks for the next like four months. Again, hitting $120 in the heart of the summer months, uh, right around July. But since July, the price has been steadily declining, dropping to under 80 bucks by the end of September. Yet the release uh, of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve continued. Now the price is jumping again because of OPEC's announcement. So the Biden administration, after not taking their foot off the gas, only has the option of further pressing down on the gas pedal, announcing an additional uh, 10 million barrels to be used. So, uh, Chris, I mean, <laughs> do you think that it's do you do you think that it was a um, a bad a bad move originally do you think that we should have taken our foot off the gas as i as i put it uh you know when the the price of oil crude whatever started dropping what's your kind of take on this uh, official account of what happened okay so uh when i when i look at this graph you know going back from 1982 to 2022 as you said you know 1990 we had a, a war uh 2000 we had a giant recession 2011, uh, we had another giant recession. I can see, you know, during those periods, how there was a need to uh, take out, you know, increments of the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve because it, it's there for things that are, you know, are, are dis disasters. But what's what's happened in uh, 2021 through 2022 is the Biden administration came into office and they said we want to stop, you know, domestic oil production. But we don't want to deal with the political consequences that that would entail. So what are we going to do? We're going to we're going to deplete our strategic petroleum reserve to try to keep the price of gas as low as possible, which worked, you know, basically through the summer. Although I would argue that a lot of that was due to the fact that demand was down because so many Americans are not driving as much. And, you know, the economy is still in somewhat of a slumber coming out of the uh, pandemic. But here's the thing that was supposed to end October 31st. The one, the initial uh, announcement from Biden. Mm. What what is going to happen after October thirty first? Gee, Donnie, we've got a uh, midterm election uh, about <laughs> ten days after that. So what? So so this latest release, I I would argue, is strictly because President Biden wants to avoid a you know a a you know massive slaughter in the midterm elections. So this is politicizing the strategic petroleum reserve, which was never supposed to be politicized. It was supposed to be there for our nation in a time of peril, but right. It's, but it's, it's being used for political purposes. Yeah. You know, so the official story, if you were to ask uh, the press secretary, the white house press secretary, she would say that they're doing this to help the consumers at the pump. We're trying to reduce the price of gasoline. We're even trying to curtail some of the inflation that we're experiencing. That's why we're doing this. And, you know, I think the official side, the, the other official story that coming from like conservative circles, I think you kind of uh, uh, you, you presented quite well, which is that this is just purely for the political ramifications of this. The Biden administration is trying to drive prices lower so that people forget about this issue come election season. I have no doubt that that's a major factor of all of this. But uh, Justin, what, what do you what do you think about a the official story coming from like the White House, but b also this kind of counter narrative by like the conservative circles? 
Yeah. So what I think is really strange about this is that um, I, I think you can make the argument, sure, that maybe maybe this is really, truly, purely all about just we're trying to keep the price of gasoline as low as possible. And so we're going to just take all this oil from the strategic oil supply and we're going to pump it into the uh, global marketplace and that's going to lower costs. But it really it really doesn't work all that well. It doesn't actually make up that much of a difference. Uh, if you just look at at the amount of oil that we're putting into the supply, the amount of oil that's normally uh, bought and sold on the marketplace, it's really a pretty small amount of oil relative to what's going on globally. Yeah, like so like I, I said, like tw we're twenty million is a, is the amount that we're supposedly use in in a year twenty or uh, in a day right, twenty right. twenty million barrels, and this is an increase of one million barrels. So it's what is that like a five percent increase? Yeah, right. And <laughs> so that's that would not... mean like a five percent reduction in price. Which is... I mean, at best, it's a five percent reduction in price. That's not exactly how prices work anyway. Sure. But let's right. but let's say that it's a reduction of five percent. It's like. 5% is not much when you're talking about whether people feel like, because, because, because the price of gasoline, which is really what's driving a lot of this in terms of people's, uh, what uh, the political ramifications of it, right? I mean, it affects everything in the economy, but people notice it because there's a price everywhere they go driving around plastered on big boards and they can see the prices going up and everybody's paying it basically, or the vast majority of people. Um, and a 5% decrease in the price of gasoline after prices had more than doubled at one point in time really doesn't mean all that much. Mm -hmm. So I have a hard time believing that the motivation here is purely just, well, let's just gut our strategic oil supplies so that we can reduce prices by about 5% going into the election. I, I understand that that seems to be what's what's going on, but this, A... They're almost, I mean, how much longer can they even do this, right? Like that, that they're going to run out of oil at some point, right? And then the big headline's going to be, there's no oil in the strategic oil reserve, which doesn't seem like a very good headline either. And so what you're left with is the, is, is the main uh, justifications that are being put out there are, this is just a, a really a reckless move to reduce oil prices from people who are on the right. A really rec reckless move to reduce oil prices, which I understand. But if it is, that's that really the payoff is not that much, really. Or two, it, it's it's just um, you know th this uh, Biden's just stupid, basically. Like right. it, it, he's just an idiot and he doesn't know what he's doing. Now I'm not saying he's smart because <laughs> he's not. But but what? But I but I I think there might be more to this. I actually think that there's something more to what's going on here. Because when you look at that chart that Donnie had up earlier and you see how we've, how we've gone to, to levels that we haven't seen in 40 years or, or close to 40 years, I, I don't know how you could argue that this is purely just about trying to reduce gas prices a little bit. This is a much bigger move than that. It seems. And, and the, and refilling it because that's the other thing you have to think about, right? refilling the oil supply. If that's the plan, if the plan is just, well, we're going to do it temporarily to reduce prices, then that means they're going to refill it at some point. Right. But if you were to refill it, uh, a, that would be totally in opposition to what people on the far left 
within the Democrat Party want because they don't want uh, people reliant on fossil fuels. So is the Biden administration going to come out and say, well, we're going to buy 600 million barrels of oil tomorrow. We got to refill that thing back up. Yeah, I don't think so. Like that would be politically not helpful for them. B, that would actually increase demand and raise prices when they do that because now you're you're throwing in this massive seller on the market, uh, the buyer on the marketplace that isn't normally there buying up hundreds of millions of barrels of oil every day, right? So it's going to raise prices again. The war in Russia, there's no sign that that's going to end anytime soon, or the war in Ukraine, there's no sign that that's going to end anytime soon. And so this problem isn't going to really go away in terms of the price of, of gas and oil globally. Um, and so I don't buy it. I think I think that there's something more going on here than your standard talking points type stuff. I, I just, yep. I don't think any of the normal explanations make any sense. Chris, I want I want your take on on what uh, Justin just said. But Justin, you mentioned the idea, and I've seen this in in articles, which is probably you know what's been going around. But it's this idea that's like at the lowest point in forty years. And I and I, I specifically mentioned like the creation of this being in 1975 for a reason, because when you hear that, you know, like the, it's, it's the same thing with like inflation, right? It's the highest inflation that it's been in 40 years. And you have this mental image of this like infinite timeline of, of inflation going up and down and it goes up. And then for 40 years, it's kind of low and then it goes up again or anything like like this. Again, pull that chart back up. It's like this is basically the entire timeline of this. So, yeah, it's it's. It's the lowest that it's been in 40 years of a timeline of 50 years. <laughs> so it's basically right. like those first 10 years was just getting started. Like this yeah. is basically the lowest it's ever been, despite right. the fact that it took a while to get it up to where it was in, yeah. the, in you know the late 80s. Well, I mean, you could argue that all the way up until two. Th- I mean, if you look at the chart, really, it was on an upward trend all the way until like 2010, 2011 ish. Right. And, and so even when it did drop, they, they immediately refilled it. I mean, and, and then added more and now we're just, it's just plummeting. And so it can't, it can't be. And then, and then the other thing is this is the strategic oil reserve. The whole point of it is for really bad emergencies, not only economic emergency, but like war and stuff like that. Right. And, in case anyone hasn't noticed, there is a giant war happening in Europe right now. And who knows what will happen with China potentially invading Taiwan. You have the president of the United States saying, uh, despite people at the White House walking this back all the time, but he has on numerous occasions said that if China invades Taiwan, America's not going to allow that to happen. Well, sure. so are you suggesting that we're going to go to war with China? And if you're suggesting that we're going to go to war with China and that's rattling around in that crazy brain of yours, Joe, then why are you draining the strategic oil supply right before we could potentially be going into a world war? Like, none yeah, just of this so makes we could pay sense. just so we could pay a quarter less at the gas tank. Yeah, Tiny, at, at Tiny, the gas to pay a quarter. Like it makes no sense. A quarter less. Like a like you mean a quarter? Like an actual yeah, twenty five well, cents? No, that's what yeah. I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Not a quarter like, total. It's, no, it's nothing. <laughs> it's it's just it's just it's insanity. So I think there has to be something more. To All right, Chris, I want I want your take on this. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I agree with with Justin. I think both things can be true at the same time. I think that there can be a short term uh, political. Uh, agenda here, but also a long-term political agenda, which I completely agree that they want to undo our fossil fuel-based economy. Last night, uh, you know, when I was kind of like watching some news channels and flipping around, uh, when Chris, 
Yeah. When uh, when Chris Hayes gave off his, uh, you know, his his send off to Alex Wagner, who took over for Rachel Maddow, she I, I was just so struck by their by their brief interaction because uh, her her you know, in, introduction was, gee, Chris, you're so right. We just have to get off of fossil fuels. We have to do it so fast, so quickly. And it's just like, excuse me, do you understand that you cannot just snap your fingers and get the United States economy off of fossil fuels? That is just impossible. So I, I, I think I think there's a there's a dual agenda here. I think that they're trying to you know hold on to power, and they are very worried about rising gas prices right before the midterm elections, and they're starting to see some of the polls turn against them. So they're saying, uh oh, we definitely don't want to lose you know a bunch of seats in the House and possibly lose the Senate as well. So let's do anything we can. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So let's just try to uh, you know uh, tell the American people, oh, don't worry, we're on top of this. We're going to dump some more. Uh, uh, oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try to get you know gas prices to go down so that they can then frame the narrative going into the election of, look, it's working. Gas prices are going down again. Don't worry. You have nothing to worry about. But I think that they also definitely have long-term ambitions of their you know insane uh, green economy, which is yeah. antithetical with uh, the existence of petroleum. <laughs> right. It's antithetical to modern society. Yeah, I, I also I, I don't want to anyone like listening to this and think that we're like downplaying the the severity of uh, gasoline prices going from two dollars uh, and, and tripling to six dollars. Like, I understand that's a horrible thing. People that are, you know, on a shoestring budget like that, that could wreck them. The, the way that that cascades through the prices of everything in the market is like, I don't want to downplay that. But like the point of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is for like absolute chaos right it's like your rainy day fund and we're spending a fourth of that rainy day fund because it's relatively sprinkling outside like, but that's I think the that situation this is, this is this is part and parcel with with the the biden you know like approach to governing it's 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 very short-term oriented it's uh you know how can we transform the country as quickly as we can and if that means gutting the strategic petroleum reserve then i think that there's 100% fine with that. I so I, I I agree with Justin, but I do think that there is a uh, a small part of this uh, just to keep gas prices as low as possible going into the midterms because I think that they are scared out of their minds that as gas prices are starting to rise again, people might uh, change their votes here at the last minute. So 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 I have a I I don't I don't disagree with that. I think there is a short term political at least it's a gain in the sense that they can give people the perception they're doing something about the problem, even though they're really not, but they mm -hmm. can, people will buy it because that's the way that it will be sold in the New York times and Washington right. post and CNN and whatever. Um, but what I, I guess what I want to know is, so we've now drained hundreds of millions of barrels from the strategic oil reserve. Okay. We are sure going to continue doing this for at least a while. Um, maybe they won't totally deplete it. Although if they stop doing this at some point, then prices will go up a little bit as a result of them not doing this. So I don't really know what the long-term plan is for that. Uh, but if they actually do continue draining it further and further downward, I mean, what, what do they, do they ever buy it back? It, it, I mean, do you guys think they'll actually buy it back and then it'll go back up again? And if not, then what what is the answer to the question of, well, then what happens if we are in some kind of like military uh, crisis or emergency or something? 
what how do they even answer that question at that point if they're if they're not going to buy it back i i i don't i i don't know if they're even thinking that far ahead but i do, but i do know that they are uh, somewhat uh depending on iran and venezuela to come back online soon and it just so happens that the day that Saudi Arabia, you know, announced that OPEC would be uh, cutting off their production by two million barrels a day, the Biden administration uh, reopened uh, negotiations with Venezuela to lift the sanctions to get them to start pumping oil again. And we and we all know that they have been, you know, uh, advancing the uh, the uh, Iran deal to try to get Iran, you know, back uh, into the oil game. So I, you know, I mean, I I don't understand what they're thinking is behind that because why would you want to empower you know a socialist dictatorship and a uh, you know tyrannical regime uh, in Iran by by uh, buying oil from them but you know that's that's the illogical approach that the Biden administration seems to be taking yeah, there's a couple of articles when you look this up that are just talking about how, you know, the the administration is putting themselves in a really tough spot here. And I, and I kind of already mentioned a little bit of that, where it's like the administration has no other option to to help alleviate these prices than just further press down on the gas pedal. And, and it just kind of reminds me of like uh, the interest rates when, you know, during a recession or something like that, they'll drop the baseline interest rate into, in, in order to kind of spur economic activity and to 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 boost the economy but it's like when we're at near zero interest rates and then we have a recession it's like there's nothing else you can do you've already dropped it to zero you know like we're going to have negative interest rates like japan or something and it kind of reminds me of that it's like we're already you know tapping into this so if things get worse what are we going to do tap into it more like that's that's our only option here well but danny so, don't you think the same thing exists at the you know national budget level i know our national debt just exceeded 31 trillion and i don't see anyone you know on both sides of the aisle <laughs> talking about actually uh you know reining in uh our out of control budget so i think this is just like it, it, it's another uh instant gratification and kick the can down the road which has become the norm in washington and it's part, I think, of a much larger, you know, decline of, uh, you know, America. Yeah, I don't know. And to to go back to Justin's idea of like, are they going to refill this? I'm not sure that they will. I, I think the calls to keep it in the ground are going to be uh, kind of the largest chorus. I mean, maybe if there's, you know, somebody with an R in front of their name that occupies the White House, maybe they'll try to do it. But then... You know, you're just going to have the New York Times being like, see, they're artificially creating higher gas prices because they're buying up all this oil just so they could store it away. I know that's like a very, (laughs) right. That's a a very cynical, it's a very cynical outlook, but I mean. So then, so then, so then what is the answer to the question when they say, okay, well, but you drained it all. So what happens if there's an emergency? What do you do? We got like, What if we go to war panels. with somebody? What do you do? They just they don't even answer the question. They don't have yeah. a plan at all. I mean, I, I I personally think that 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 at least I think there has to be a plan for this because I don't think there's any way that they don't that they don't do this for now. If they just did it once or something, you know, that'd be one thing. But for them to do it over and over and over again, there must be a long term plan. And I, I know I, long... I think I think all they're planning is that uh, it's just, you know, any issue that's going to arise from this is going to be like just proof that, you know, relying on fossil fuels is unreliable. Like it's just going to backstop their their own mm-hmm. narrative. I think that's that's what their plan is. They don't yeah, have I a mean, real I... plan. <laughs> they just have like right, a spin. Right, in right. Mind. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also just sheer incompetence. 
Yeah, no. that could be. I, I think I think that we're gonna soon see solar powered uh, tanks and <laughs> yeah. um, fighter jets that run on uh, that you plug in uh, yeah. to an outlet, to do a two pronged outlet, and right. um, bio, I think that's where biofuels that that uh, are like four times more expensive than traditional oil and uh, only get you as half the distance down the road. <laughs> that's that's what yeah. we're gonna rely on. Yeah. Oh, no, it's absolutely crazy. And um, I'll see what happens. But you have noticed that gas prices have gone up a good 50, 60 cents in just the last week. And I don't know if that was part of the plan uh, heading into election season. But it seems like that is because I've even heard just like, you know, anecdotally, like I have heard people saying, like, oh, yeah, gas prices are going down ignoring the fact that they're still double what they were like a year and a half ago. But like, that's the narrative now. Gas prices are going down. But now in the last week, it seems like that's completely spun 180 and it's gone up like literally like 50, 60 cents now. So yeah. um, it's not a, not a good situation for them going into the election season. No, it's definitely not. And in places where they are especially uh, concerned about about this, because if you just look at a map of, of gas prices and where they're the highest and um, and things like that, it, it's interesting how the places with the lowest gas prices are are in the South Maine, sure. and those places are all going to vote Republican no matter what. Right. Mm. So what's interesting about that is the places that are experiencing some of the highest prices are, uh, places that there's a lot of swing States in there and there's a lot of States in there where they have important Senate races. And so it's it's really not working to the benefit of of the Democratic Party. I mean, when you look at like you've got Ohio on there, it's almost four dollars. Um, Wisconsin is over four dollars. You have a really important Senate race there. Um, you Pennsylvania. know, Pennsylvania, really important three eighty. And then, you know, it's it's just there's no sign whatsoever um, that this is working. If this is the plan, the plan isn't going very well for them. So. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. And by the way, one of the reasons why the gas prices are so high in a lot of these, uh, West coast States, and they're so low in Southern States is it's got a lot to do with taxes, got a lot to do with taxes and regulations and stuff like that. So, uh, it is possible that everywhere could have the same gas prices as the prices in the South. Sure. There's nothing particularly special about it's a global market for the most part. It's driven by yeah. taxes and regulations and all of that. So. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting topic. We're definitely going to keep an eye on it, um, but I don't, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> it just seems like it, we're putting ourselves in a very tough spot here. Uh, so this next topic I want to get into, though, is one that's not getting nearly the attention that it deserves. So back in March, President Joe Biden signed an executive order about a potential digital dollar or a central bank backed digital currency or CBDC. The executive order or ordered various departments in the government to submit reports on a potential CBDC within six months and to have potential legislation on his desk within eight months. So now in September, you know, that's six months after that uh, executive order was signed, we were sitting there waiting for some of these reports to come in from these various government agencies. And finally, just a couple of weeks ago, the White House released a fact sheet White House releases first ever comprehensive framework for responsible development of digital assets. So, Justin, this has been a topic that's been on your radar radar as of late. Uh, is there anything in this fact sheet worth noting or is it intentionally just 
uh, broad and, and not really offering too much insight. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I think that for the most part, the big takeaway from this, because there was a lot of information that came out when uh, the March, I think it was March 9th executive order was released by the Biden administration about digital assets, including the the study for a central bank digital currency. A lot of stuff came out during that period of time. If you were paying attention in their frequently asked questions uh, sheet that they put out in their, uh, remember their fact sheet in their, um, uh, they did a Q&A with uh, press uh, that was very lengthy and they answered a lot of questions there. Um, there's a variety of things that the Federal Reserve has put out over time. There's groups that are sort of partnering with uh, various uh, agencies and uh, people involved in all of this that have nonprofits and Hamilton Project and all these others that have put out a whole bunch of things. So there's been a lot out there. Uh, and I don't know that there was anything new in this in terms of what we can expect from a digital currency other than um, they are clearly going full steam ahead on this idea. And that that's was kind of my takeaway take too. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the I, main takeaway. There's lots of talk about financial inclusion and right. equity and designing a, a digital dollar that will help the environment and all this stuff. But that was already, we already knew all of that. All this is, is sort of the stamp of approval from the federal government because all these different agencies had to produce reports saying what they thought of it. And so they all officially said, yep, we like the idea or here's the good things and the bad things about it. And then Biden administration took that or the, uh, the White House took that and they said, well, here's our summary from the federal government. Here's what we think. Now uh, we're going to put together some task force type thing to continue developing this. We're going to encourage the Federal Reserve to continue developing this. Go out and make this thing happen, maybe at some point mm. in the future, because mm. they always throw that in there. It's like they're not. Sh we're not sure if we're doing it, but let's keep releasing tons of reports and spending all of this money, all recommending that we do yeah. it. So uh, I think that's the big takeaway. They're not going to stop. They're not, because if they were going to kill it, if they were going to say, "Well, nope, we're going to derail this train." then they would have done it now. Like, this is the time to do it. They would have gotten yeah. all these reports in and right. said, nope, no. we decided too risky. We're not going to do it. Yeah, that, that was kind of my takeaway too. So I was reading through this and, and, and admittedly, I was kind of just scanning through it. And there was just nothing that was like, oh yeah, this is headline worthy or anything like that. Like, it just seemed a, a, a combination of all the stuff that we've already kind of seen just put into one report. But yeah, just like you said, my main takeaway was like, well, it doesn't seem like they're slowing down the train on this uh, journey towards a central bank-backed digital currency. Um, and as I've mentioned before uh, in previous conversations about this topic, I only expect the worst case scenario, uh, basically from any government action. So a potential creation of a new digital currency is no different. <laughs> I also am expecting the worst. So we've talked about uh, some of these elements, uh, increased ability to control monetary policy uh, through some type of central bank backed digital currency. The idea of helicopter drops, where if you you know everyone's got a um, you know a, a government assigned a, a, a digital wallet, and they can just like add stimulus checks right into it. You don't even have to wait for them in the mail; they just pop it in there. Or the idea of like controlled custom interest rates, so they can give certain people maybe to to increase equity, financial equity. They can give certain people different interest rates based on the money that's in their account. 
Um, also, the programmability of of uh, of a digital currency like this, where you could have these smart contracts that are applied to this, that only allows this money to be uh, spent in certain ways or certain quantities on certain types of products. Um, I saw one person refer to like a, a potential central bank backed digital currency as like just turning our money into food stamps where it's all dictated and controlled by the government. Um, the idea of control of the use of this money, I already kind of went into that. And also the trackability, I don't think that's a real word, of this money where like the government can completely keep tabs on every digital dollar that's spent and where it goes and whose wallet it comes from and whose wallet it goes into. So it increases the tools of the government. It cre creates the, uh, a totalitarian system of the currency uh, where there is no anonymity. And there's been a couple of stories that kind of make me feel like this, like we will get this worst case scenario that I'm kind of painting here. And uh, I have all the links that, I, that I'm mentioning uh, some of this stuff in the show notes so you can check it out. But uh, Federal, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said in March that a CBDC would necessitate the creation of a government-issued digital wallet tied to a unique digital ID. So the idea that you think that, uh, you know, this might have some anonymous quality because, you know, Bitcoin and stuff like that, some other cryptocurrencies has, seems like the Federal Reserve Chairman is adamantly against that. More recently, Jerome Powell reemphasized the need for identity verification, saying that a digital dollar would not be anonymous. So again, like that just makes it seem like the government's going to be tracking pretty much everything that a dollar gets spent on. So I, I, like I said at the beginning of this, I know I have a cynical outlook on anything that the government does, but these couple of quotes from the Federal Reserve Chairman makes me think that we're going much down that path. And uh, uh, Justin did warn me about this, uh, that he might have to drop out a couple of minutes early. He's got some stuff going on at home, so he is not on the call anymore. So just you and me, Chris. Chris, what do you think about all this just from your kind of perspective? Uh, what do you, What do you think? Well, first, I think, you know, we need to uh, make sure that the listeners understand there's a huge difference between digital currency and a CBDC. Digital sure. currency like uh, Ethereum or like Bitcoin, those are completely anonymous. Those are decentralized and those are a very, you know, promising technology. But <clears throat> what the Federal Reserve is, uh, you know, trying to do and what the you know Chinese uh, are already doing is having a uh, a monetary system that is completely trackable by the government, and that is the end of privacy. And uh, that's why when uh, Jerome Paul said yes that this will not be anonymous, that you know sends shivers down my spine because that means that the government is going to have a ledger of every single transaction that you, I, or anyone else in this country makes. Right. And that means that they, and like you said, that means that they can say. You're spending too much money on this, or you're spending not enough money on that, or, or you you're spending on this in this firearm store has uh, raised mm -hmm. a red flag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it, you know, and and you mentioned, uh, yeah, you mentioned China is pursuing this. So there's like a hundred different countries that are pursuing it. One of the first and and forefront leaders of trying to pursue this central bank backed digital currency was China. So yes. if we're following uh, China's path, probably not the, not the well, best. And, and, and Donnie, just, you know, just, just think about how, how, how much 
easier it would be for China to uh, implement their social credit score of system course. with a CBDC in place. Sure. Same with the United States. It would be a lot easier for them to control our behaviors, whether through sheer force or through, uh, you know, nudging. If they have, you know, control over our, you know, our, our money. So that's why that's why I'm very scared about the, you know, the long term uh, ramifications of this where, you know, pr pri if this is in place, privacy is gone. Yeah, it's uh, it. I also just want to highlight the idea that like, you know, a lot of the ways that people spend their money is very digital, right? You've got a you've got a bank account that you check the balance on your phone. You've got a debit card that you just swipe. A lot of people don't even have much cash on them at any given time. So they think like, oh, then what's the difference here? It's completely different. It's like a brand new currency that has all of the stuff embedded into it. So yes, while, you know, your bank could could theoretically track, you know, what you're spending your money on, this pushes that all into the government's domain. So it's a completely different animal that we're talking about here. Absolutely. Uh, and and, and do, do you remember a couple months ago when the IRS floated the idea of tracking all uh, transactions in and out of our bank accounts over a certain amount of money? And it, it was actually, like 600 it, bucks or something. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, that, you know, the, the amount wasn't, you know, that, that large, actually. Imagine if, imagine if they have, you know, the ability to do that for every single transaction yeah. that we make yeah, every single day. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, you, you've mentioned earlier in the show, and we bring it up on the podcast all the time that, you know, you watch the mainstream or the corporate media so that we don't have to, uh, do they ever talk about this? Is this ever a topic that kind of gets into that, uh, you know, 24 seven news cycle? Not much. Uh, I'd say right now, MSNBC, CNNs, and you know the usual suspects are almost completely in campaign mode. <laughs> so almost every single segment is about making the Republican candidate look as you know monstrous as possible, and making the Democratic candidate look as you know great as possible. But yeah. no, I I have not seen much about CBDCs um, on in in their coverage. Yeah, that see, and that that actually is. That that should frighten you. <laughs> yeah, because they're because, not because, because they're it. trying to hide it. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And the fact that, like, you know, the, the Biden administration pushed this executive order, the, the idea that they had this six month mandate for all these reports to come in and some eight month mandate for some potential legislation to be put on his desk. Like there could theoretically in just like four or five weeks be some big piece of legislation on Joe Biden's desk, or at least being talked about in Congress, about establishing a new currency, but the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world just don't even want to talk about it. We'd rather well, talk about January 6th or something. It's insane. Well, of course. But here's here's one thing that I have noticed, and this, this has been happening for years on those networks. They are anti-digital currencies. So the fact oh. that they're anti-digital currency makes me think just by, you know, by definition that they will be for a CBDC, because I because yes. I think you, you have to remember they do not like, uh, you know, private you know privacy. They do not like decentralized power. They are in favor of centralization and centralized power. Yeah, which CBDC embodies that. That that is also another thing that like people have to know is that this is completely the opposite of just like a cryptocurrency. You might mm -hmm. think of Bitcoin and a, and a potential digital dollar as like you know uh, synonymous, but they're not. They're completely the opposite. One decentralizes control of all of this stuff. One completely centralizes control. Complete opposite. But we are running out of time. It seems like Justin's trying to pop in back in here. I'm not really I'm not sure if that's just some. Uh, 
Justin, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you, we only have like 45 seconds. So I'll give you a last word on this. I know you probably missed uh, Chris and I's conversation about this, but I'll give you the last word. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, the, I think if you're going to take anything away from this, I think the most, I think it is truly one of the most important stories that no one is talking about because it has the potential to change basically everything. I mean, this is, this is uh, the ultimate tool to control society. If mm -hmm. you have the ability to program a currency and how it can be used and how much it can be spent and how much of it exists and you can airdrop a trillion dollars to America tomorrow if you want, if it's politically convenient, I mean, it, it would completely transform the way government works and because the Fed would almost certainly be put in charge of it rather than have the government in charge of it because of the way that that looks, the, it just looks politically better. Um, and the Fed will do everything the government wants anyway. It will, it will not be easy to stop. So if the right. Fed wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what? Gas prices are too high. Let's give everybody, you know, $10,000 to pay for gas this year or whatever, $1,000 or whatever. Like they could do that. And then sure. just push a button and create it and then just airdrop it into people's bank account. Like, and then they could even design it so that those dollars couldn't be spent on other things. So, I mean, this kind of thing is highly likely, I think, to happen if they can manage to get it through Congress. So it is an incredibly important story. No one pays attention to it because the media doesn't ever talk. The mainstream media doesn't yeah. want to talk about it. They don't want yeah. people to know this is going on. And yeah. the right is so concerned with a whole bunch of other things that they, this is one of these things that's just slipped through the cracks and they're not really paying attention to it. And, right. and, and Donnie, you know, Justin mentioned that the, the federal reserve could, you know, airdrop, you know, 10,000 or 1000 say here, you're going to spend this on gasoline. Well, the, the, at the same time, they could also say you only get to spend 500 a month on gasoline because <laughs> of, you know, your, your carbon footprint. So they right. could also restrict yeah, absolutely. Very easily what we buy and purchase. Yeah, it's a, it's an insane thing. I think we're going to be talking about it more, uh, more and more, especially as we get more details on it. Unfortunately, we're sitting here left to speculate. And when that happens, and when I'm left to speculate, again, specifically about government action, I take the worst case scenario and worry about that. So we're going to be talking about this more and more, but that's going to do it for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, those audio-only listeners that are probably catching this on a Friday, Friday, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon, streaming on basically everything, Facebook and Twitter and Rumble and YouTube. Join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the show. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Um, also, like I said, you can uh, do just a couple of things that could, that could help us won't cost you a, a penny but it'll only cost you a second just hit that like button leave a comment under this video share this content all these things help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people also and if you'd like you can follow us on twitter at in the tank pod if you have any comments suggestions or questions for the show feel free to email us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com justin haskins where can the fine people find you they can find me on parlor twitter getter facebook or meta or whatever the heck we're calling it now uh at justin t haskins and you can also go to uh heartland.org and, and find all sorts of good stuff there that we're doing on especially esg right absolutely uh chris talgo what do you have to pitch today 
please go to stoppingsocialism.com. We got some really interesting and fun content up there. And the benefit dinner for uh, the Harlan Institute is on October 21st. If you can make it, please come. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see some of our uh, frequent guests here, uh, viewers, to, to show up in person, meet you in real life. Heartland.org, you'll see a little thing at the top, featured image, or you can go to benefit.heartland.org for tickets and information. All right, thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week.